who is going to very kindly share her experience, strength and hope with us. So over to you, Shinny. Oh, so you're on mute. Bear with me, hang on. Someone unmute Shinny. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Perfect. Great. Thank I'm you. Shinny, I'm an alcoholic. Thank you so much. Um, wow, what an amazing meeting. Uh, I was just looking at the participants and there's a lot of you and it's um, really amazing to be connected with people all around the world. Um, on my eighth birthday, Halloween, uh, and it's just been such an incredible year um, in terms of connecting with fellows from the program, um, especially during this time of COVID where connection and um, kind of socializing has been sort of put into question this year. And uh, it's weird because even though we haven't been allowed to be together physically, um, I've never felt more connected to the program. And it's all thanks to the power of Zoom actually, um, because I, uh, in the last year or so, I have been, um, I've started a new job um, and I got into a new relationship and both of those things really had me distancing myself away from the program. And uh, purely because I just couldn't get to meetings because of my job and then also new relationship kind of trying not to show um, how much I actually relied on the program to keep me spiritually fit. And as a result of kind of a lot of promises coming true, um, I started to just uh, not put so much time and effort into going to meetings. And I was early on in my recovery, I was definitely doing at least one meeting a day. Um, and it was getting to the point where I just was not getting to meetings every week and weeks were going by and and uh, and I really started to feel it. And actually when we all went into lockdown back in March, I heaved a huge sigh of relief because honestly life was beginning to get to me. Um, I was becoming really overwhelmed. Um, I just felt like I was always chasing my tail. Um, life was just getting too much. Um, I was always exhausted um, and I always felt like I was um, just always trying to catch up. And actually looking back now, I can see it's because I just wasn't getting to meetings. So when uh, meetings started to go online, I reconnected with so many people that I was close to, um, particularly my women's meetings. And uh, it was just, it's just been the most amazing time of kind of just, and also, you know, it does take a lot of time investment to like get to a meeting and then an hour in a meeting and then getting back. And so to be able to just switch Zoom on and then immediately see all these familiar faces that I had got to know over the course of eight years, was just amazing. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's, it's just been an amazing sort of like 
eighth year of recovery. But going right back to the beginning, God, eight years ago, um, I had got to a point where I, I just, I was sick and tired of my life. Like I had led a really sort of jet, left, jet set lifestyle, always at sort of cocktail parties, gallery openings, so much champagne, everything just looked so glamorous and exciting outside oh shinny we've lost i was absolutely like i just um and uh can you hear me yeah that's better just suddenly it yeah just went for a second okay um i just remember always being out and always being really sociable and and you know always wanting to be the life and the soul of a party and it was really alcohol that allowed me to come out of my shell. I, um, I know now after eight years of sobriety that I am actually a really, really shy person. But back then I always felt like I had to perform. I, I always felt like I had to put on a show for everyone and, and alcohol gave me the fuel to do that. And so I became the sort of drinker that needed to have a drink before going out for drinks. And as time progressed, like I, I had to get absolutely smashed before I could be at any social event. And, you know, I, I had loads of numbers and names in my phone, but none of those people I could call close friends. Like I had loads of acquaintances, but actually no one cared about each other. They just... I had many transactional relationships where, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type of situations. And after a while, it just, it was such an empty existence. Um, I had my first drink at the age of 18. And that's the thing, I, I never actually did anything particularly wrong. Like I was always on the right side of the law. Um, you know, always wanted to be the good girl. But when I had my first drink and I felt that feeling of total escape and total um, and letting go, I wanted more and more of it. And actually alcohol for me was first a medicine for all the anxiety and stress that I experienced um, through my education. And education is a big part of my kind of struggle because um, I come from a really strict upbringing. My Sri Lankan father always wanted his three girls to be highly educated because actually, you know, as two parents that came from different countries and settled in London, they carried a lot of shame for living in the UK I look, I look at them now and I see that they still have this sense of like, they shouldn't really be here. This isn't their country. Um, always apologizing, always taking a whole load of racism and just saying, well, you know, those racist comments, you know, maybe they've got a point because we're not from here. And, and so I grew up in this household where we just, we had to apologize for 
wanting to be part of a community. And really, my mom and my dad and my two sisters and I, we were were kind of like an island all on our own. And we really just had each other. And, you know, I see now that it's actually a very enmeshed kind of family dynamic where all of us are way too engaged in each other's business. And part of my sobriety has been learning how to detach from the entanglement of being in this family dynamic where everybody knows everybody's business. Um, But, you know, I'm definitely a self-confessed daddy's girl where all I wanted to do was just gain the recognition and validation of my dad. And one of the key ways that I wanted to do that was um, to get the education that he always wanted for me. And he's an engineer and I ended up studying mechanical engineering to a really high level. Um, Don't know whether I was actually interested in it genuinely, but it was just absolute sort of like tunnel vision had to get those qualifications in engineering to take over the family business. And being the eldest, like all the pressure was kind of on me. Um, And, you know, so from a very early age, I always put somebody else's expectation for me at the forefront of my drives, my ambitions, my choices, my decisions. It was always, what does someone else want for me? I never once thought about what it is that I wanted for me. I didn't even know that that was a concept. And I think that's why I ended up turning to drink because it was the only legal allowable thing that allowed me to just cut out the voices in my head that were telling me that I was not enough, that I had to study harder, I had to get better grades, I had to be more and more and more and more. And it worked. Alcohol really worked for a long, long time. And, um, and yeah, so I just kept taking more of it. And, um, you know, my, my dad is such a perfectionist. He, I often tell this story when I give chairs, so might as well tell it again, which is that, you know, I always struggled with maths and you need maths for engineering. And I was always getting really terrible grades. And um, and then one day, I think around the age of 11, the penny dropped and, and it started to make sense. And uh, I ended up getting 98% in a maths test and, or, you know, really high score. And all I wanted to do was run home and tell dad about it. And uh, when I got home, the first thing he said was, uh, you know, what happened to the 2% or something. And that was really how I lived my life. It was always, you know, looking at the 2% or looking at the little bit that I didn't get right. And I still do that today. I still fixate on the things that aren't right. But I must say, like, after years and years of recovery, I'm starting to get so much more compassionate and kind with myself and letting myself off the hook more and more. Um, And that just comes with sort of, greater amounts of self-acceptance. But for a long time, um, the only self-acceptance wasn't an option. The only thing that was, was drowning out all of those expectations and um, strict discipline. And um, and yeah, uh, 
until eight years ago <laughs> when I just absolutely, you know, I used to be the person that carried vodka around in an Evian bottle. Um, and I would take a swig of it whenever I was basically outside of my front door because I was never the kind of drinker that drank alone. Like when I was at home with my front door shut, I felt safe. I felt like there was no judgment. I felt like there was no one to impress, that no one was gonna criticize me and no one was gonna pick me apart. I mean, total self-obsession. But as soon as I left my front door, um, you know, I just, I couldn't cope with not being enough. And, um, and so when it got to a point of carrying vodka in an Evian bottle, you know, and having to take swigs in the morning, um, I just thought, you know, this is, this is really, I'm, I'm reaching rock bottom. And there were so many incidents that were, that were indicative that I was like really at my worst. Um, you know, I was uh, going to um, see someone on a film set um, to give them sort of moral support uh, world that I was in. And uh, I was in New York at the time and I had run out and I had to, we were being picked up at 11 a.m. to go to um, this film set. And I remember thinking, I absolutely have to get vodka before 11 a.m., where am I gonna go? And there was this off license just down the road, but actually it took about 15 minutes to walk there. And, um, and when I got there, she didn't believe that I was over 21, but I was like, you know, I was definitely well over 21. And she was like, I'm sorry, I can't sell you any alcohol without your ID. So I had to like go back to the hotel. It was like five to 11. I absolutely had to like go back um, and, uh, and get that vodka. And then when I got back to the hotel, the car was waiting, everyone was in the car waiting for me. And there I was with my brown paper bag full of vodka. And, you know, one of the people in the car said, oh, did you have to go and get some alcohol? And it was like, you know, I was outed and I just, I, it's starting to, it's starting to become public this problem of mine but yeah I kept I kept on drinking for about a year and a half or two years more um I was just ignoring all the signs and you know just in total denial and dishonesty and um my rock bottom came when I was at a girlfriend's birthday party and she decided to have the party in a club in London and it was one of those clubs where you know they wheel out the trolley full of every single type of vodka, uh, every single type of alcohol that you could think of with the mixers. And I was there like mixing my own drinks of like, you know, that much vodka and then a dash of cranberry. And um, I bumped into a friend that I'd known for like five or six years out and about, you know, that kind of social acquaintance where you're always seeing pe the same people at the same parties. And he kept dragging me onto the dance floor and I absolutely didn't have that relaxed moment that alcohol gave me to be able to dance. And he must've tried to like pull me onto the dance floor over the course of the evening about three or four times. And 
and just wasn't relaxed enough to dance. And I was watching him on the dance floor and he had this sparkle in his eyes and he was like dancing, having a great time. And after about the three or third or fourth time him asking me to dance, I said, what are you drinking? Because you seem to be having such a great time. And he said, I don't drink. And in that moment, this like dark kind of sexy club just like went bright white. And I just thought, my God, I really want what you've got. Because my life had got so small and so dark and so pathetic and like it was just a miserable existence. I was just going from one empty party to the next. No one gave a shit about each other. And, you know, it was just there had to be something more to life than that. And I ended up meeting this person for coffee um, a few days later and he told me all about AA and I was 34 um, and I had never heard of AA. I thought it was, you know, an organisation that fixed your car when you break down and, and that was it. Like, I listened to his stories, his war stories, I, you know, and I just thought, I want to try this and I kept hanging out with him I actually like he was an absolute life raft for me because he just had so much positivity and hope and light in his eyes and I just so desperately wanted that and I was willing to try everything and so I stopped drinking um, and I went to my first AA meeting and I absolutely was horrified. I was like, oh my God, these people are so scary. I don't identify at all with anyone. This is not for me. And I ended up going to CODA for six months um, because the reason why I thought I drank was because of failed relationships. I kept getting into toxic relationships one after the other and um, I thought that I, I thought I drank because of those, because of that pain of relationships. And um, and so I did CODA for six months, and that was kind of really eye-opening. It was very gentle, and um, you know, they've got their own 12 steps, and I was starting to work a program and getting getting into this whole idea of meetings. And at the same time as that CODA meeting at Pond Street on a Monday evening in London, um, there was an AA meeting happening at the same time. And whilst we were all in CODA, and this is not to discoder in any way, but we were all there moaning about our relationships and how everybody else is at fault and how we're the victims, uh, which I kind of loved for six months. But everyone in the AA meeting next door was having an absolutely fantastic time. They were like announcing birthdays and applause. And, you know, the, our CODA meeting was an hour and a half and theirs was an hour. And after an hour, they'd all spill out of the room and they'd be hugging each other. And, oh, I love you, mate. This is so amazing. Well done. And there was just so much camaraderie and so much support. And I just thought, you know what? I'm not drinking anyway. I'm going to these CODA meetings that are really quiet and kind of, like there was eight people in the room and and I just thought I'm gonna I'm just I might as well just go to the mothership so I started going to that Pont Street Monday night meeting and it was just absolutely amazing like I really found my tribe and you know I got my first sponsor in that meeting and it was 
incredible. Like I started working the steps. Um, that particular sponsor was really, really strict with me. And I must say, like the sponsors that I've had have really reflected where I am in my recovery. And so that sponsor was really harsh, really disciplinary, just like my dad. And I kind of, I, I, it was all I knew. It was the only way I knew of learning because that's the way I'd been raised. Um, but after about a year um, of being sponsored by her, um, gosh, so much has happened. I, I, so something like eight months into my sobriety, I got offered a job. And um, I, I work now, you know, I, I went from engineering um, into an industry that's all about communication and public speaking and, and all of that. And I could never, ever do my job sober. And so one of the things that I did when I first got sober was quit my work. And I literally started going to three meetings a day. I, I gave myself a year to get sober and I was living off savings and I just wanted to give myself a year of like clean time because my job in media, I felt was so soul destroying because as an introvert, to be in an industry that was extremely extroverted, I felt like I could only do my job with alcohol running through my veins. And so a massive part of my drinking story was that I would be drinking on the job and not able to do my job without alcohol. And that gets tricky when you have to start sort of filming at eight in the morning or whatever it is. Like I would be, I would be drunk at eight in the morning to do my job. And so that's why I had to quit. And it was a soul destroying industry anyway. And I, I wasn't getting anywhere with my work because I was completely driven, not just by alcohol, but also my ego and all of that. So three meetings a day for about a year and never going out, never having the sort of old lifestyle that I used to have parties and everything like I just I turned myself upside down um, and after about eight months a weird like set of coincidences happened but basically I was offered a job my dream job in LA and like I had to go to LA for the audition they flew me out there. I had eight months of sobriety. Like I had one day of audition. So I was talking to back in London and saying, you know, I cannot do this audition without alcohol in my veins. I've never ever been on camera without alcohol in my veins. And 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 she was like, well then just drink, drink then. And and I was like, I, you know, in my head, I was thinking, I can't throw away eight months of sobriety. Like, I, I, I can't do that. So I went to a meeting. I remember it was in West Hollywood. Um, it was in the recovery center opposite the log cabin. If anyone on this um, Zoom is from L.A., like it was such an amazing, like 6.30 a.m. meeting. Incredible. And um, and when my sponsor said, like, just drink then, I just thought, no no, I'm not going to throw eight months away of like amazingness because sobriety was really like I was making friends. I really felt part of something. I didn't want to throw that away. So I did the audition sober and I was terrible. I was so terrible. Um, and I just 
you know, I left that audition just thinking I've screwed it up and I called my sponsor and I was like, I've screwed it up. And, and she was like, you know what? If you could only do well sober, then maybe it wasn't for you anyway, because you've chosen a life of sobriety and like, you're going to have to do things sober. So maybe it's just not the right job for you. And I just thought, yeah, okay, fine. So from LA, they then flew me to New York to meet like all the heads of the, the channel. And, um, and while I was flying, they'd cut my audition tape and they'd watched it and everything. And I was sitting there in front of all these people and they were saying, so, you know, we watched your, we watched your reel and you weren't really yourself. Like you weren't your usual style on camera. And there was this like awkward silence. And I wanted to tell them that I had newly become sober. And um, I was thinking of like how to formulate it. And, and then they, they, they jumped in and said, you know, were you jet lagged? And I was like, yes, I was jet lagged. Like that was it, I was jet lagged. And they were like, okay, well, we, we, we understand sort of flying from London to LA and then doing an audition can't be that easy, but we know what your work's like anyway. And so we'd like to offer you a three year contract. And it was just like, honestly, that feeling of like, I've done eight months sobriety. I've just landed my dream job. And I did that audition sober was like the biggest godshot. And, um, you know, I ended up, it was so crazy. Like I ended up having my first year birthday in London and then flying to do my job, like start my three years in LA with a year of, um, with the year of sobriety under my belt. And I just like LA recovery just swooped me up. And it was just so amazing. Like it was my recovery journey in LA was just incredible. Um, I ended up living there for five years in total, making the most amazing friends, um, actually going to a bunch of different um, fellowships. So I, uh, I've tried AA, I've tried Al-Anon, I've tried ACA, Adult um, Children of Alcoholics. I have um, gone to SLA for my love addiction. Like I've, I've tried so many different fellowships. And I remember some fellows saying, like, if you haven't tried um, lots of different fellowships after five years, then you're in denial or something. And it's, it's honestly been an amazing journey because the whole reason why I felt like I needed to get sober was because I was really, I had always, from the age of about five, I know that I started drifting away from my truth. And the reason why I say five years old is because um, for five years, the first five years of my life, I was my absolute apple of my dad's eye. It was just me, mum and dad, and he was so adoring and so tender and so affectionate. And I had his full attention and, you know, he was my higher power. And then at the age of five, my sisters, my twin sisters came along and I went from being smothered with attention and affection to having to grow up really quickly to help my parents with these twins that came along. And I think I ended up 
being quite neglected and quite ignored and it really really affected me um you know I I adore my sisters they are my rocks in my life they're like yin and yang they're such a balance um for me but at that time I it was traumatic um sort of you know losing that direction because you know my dad being so strict like he was my north star and then to not have his attention and his direction like I, I felt completely lost and I remember sort of really not knowing which way to turn um and 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 just yeah just feeling very lost and honestly you know when we talk about sort of being emotionally stunted I still go back to being five years old sometimes like the tantrums I can pull today even in sobriety like I resort to being a five-year-old child that's like in panic mode because she doesn't know which way to turn sort of thing um yeah, so all of those differently um and when I say tried like I you know I'm still very sort of it's the 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 learning um and the growth that I have experienced by being in those fellowships is still with me today although I still am you know number one sort of fellowship as AA um but in in LA it was such a amazing opportunity to really get to know myself because I, I didn't know anyone there um, I had to sort of refend myself because the codependency was still massive you know I definitely drank over being very codependent and um, you know relationships is such a massive reason why I drank you know I really struggle with relationships today I really struggle with the shame that I carry which um you know just pops up in relationships literally hourly um if not daily and you know sobriety has really given me a chance to get to know what my triggers are so that today when I am triggered I'm able to be my own parent and I'm able to really be there for myself um and I mean, gosh, you know, there's, I've just learned so much about myself. Um, it's really been key. And I think one of the things that's really held me back from learning about myself is constantly being told growing up that I was really self-centered. Um, and that may very well be the case. Like I, I definitely uh, have, you know, I, I display sort of very selfish behavior, sometimes very sort of um, self-obsessed behavior um, because I have never learned how to, like everything's out of whack, if you know what I mean. Like everything has was really out of balance growing up. Like I had to be self-centered because if I wasn't, I felt like I was gonna die because there was no one there to sort of take care of me. You know, there were many times when like dad forgot to pick me up from somewhere because he was like dealing with the twins or whatever. And so I'd be like the only person in the school playground just panicking because there was no one there to pick me up. And just little things like that where um, I just, you know, today I can get really scared and then go into total self-obsession 
and when I am in that self-obsession, I know that, um, you know, that I'm not five anymore and that I can be there for myself. But the reason why I talk about selfishness is because, uh, you know, I, I don't have to be selfish anymore because um, it's, it's, it's not a live or die situation. Um, and I've really had to soothe myself out of that. Uh, and that whole saying of like, put your oxygen mask on before helping others really rings true for me because I know that if I'm not there for myself, I simply cannot be there for others. And so um, I've had to kind of, you know, that's that saying in AA of whenever anyone anywhere reaches out for help, you want the hand of AA to always be there. I've had to find my own healthy version of that because um, one of the things that I've always done that has really hurt me is that I've always put other people's, um, and then I've become really out of balance. But today I know that there are certain things that I've got to do for myself in order to be there and show up for other people. And I don't feel bad about that today. Whereas before I used to feel extremely guilty and extremely ashamed uh, for doing that, particularly when it comes to my family. Um, because my family, you know, they're quite sort of judgmental and they've often said to me, oh God, you're so selfish. I can't believe that, you know, you're not sort of putting putting us first when we really need you. Like, you know, and it's, it's literally boundaries. You know, I came into the programme without boundaries. And one of the many things that um, recovery has taught me is how to have healthy boundaries. And I'm still learning. I'm still learning every single day. Um, and I have turned quite a lot of corners in that regard because, um, you know, standing up for myself and having a voice has something has been something I've always um, struggled with, which is kind of crazy because I, I, I do a job that involves me speaking, but I've never, you know, AA has given me the opportunity to sort of talk about my feelings. Um, you know, what I do for a living is talk about other things, nothing to do with me. And AA has been a real sort of like practice ground for emoting and having my feelings and actually realizing I'm feeling something and then putting um, words to those feelings and expressing them. And, you know, particularly this women's group that I'm part of, it's such a safe space to talk about absolutely everything that's on my mind and feel like I'm not being judged and I'm not being um, sort of uh, conditionally loved. You know, in, in these rooms, I have really experienced unconditional love and that's not something I experienced growing up. You know, I have no doubt that my parents really loved their three um, daughters, but it was always delivered in such a conditional way. And, you know, even to this day, you know, my partner has kids and he doesn't put any conditions on them. And I often 
kind of look at him and just think, how can you, you know, they just smashed a glass on the floor. Like, why aren't you getting mad and sort of slapping them or, you know, the way I was raised. Um, not that I would wish that on them, but it's like, you know, how can you, how is he disciplining his children without this harsh treatment? Like it's, it's so alien to me. Um, and I would often panic if his kids do something wrong because I, I have that trauma in me. Um, and yeah, sort of dealing, one of the things that sort of cropped up maybe five or six years in was realizing that I, I do carry a lot of trauma because, you know, when you look at my family, we all look kind of picture perfect. Um, and we were all like highly functioning. Um, but the trauma that exists is because of just a lot of emotional abuse sounds really harsh, but it was kind of emotional manipulation. Like it was a lot of um, guilt tripping and, and, and things like that. And I've really had to come to terms with that. And I find like literally on a daily basis, like I, I do my morning pages. So every morning I write three pages. I, I essentially journal every morning. And what's really come to the forefront is just a lot of my unresolved kind of pain because what I am really seeking is to belong. Like I, I really am seeking to belong. Um, and I've just, I've always been a total misfit. So, you know, I was the only colored kid in my school. Um, you know, as an engineer, I was the only woman, you know, in a, in a massive like men. And like, there's always just been, I've always just been like unconventional and odd and a-stereotypical for lots of different reasons. And what recovery has really taught me is to celebrate that. Because for a long time, I was always in this like pity party of like, oh, I'm so different. Oh, I don't fit in. Like, you know, poor me. It's, you know, I, I just have it so tough. But actually today, because I found my voice through these rooms and because I've been loved unconditionally by all of you, like I've learned to actually be proud of being different. And, you know, as a result, sort of wanting to be part of, you know, especially our sort of fellowship. I want to be part of a group of people that feel essentially like misfits. And I really do feel like, you know, we, we found a tribe of people that have often felt like they just don't belong for various different reasons. And so, you know, I, I love being different. And, you know, the other day I was having a conversation with, um, because, you know, I'm not from privilege or, you know, uh, anything like that. And, you know, I don't know where my parents, I, I don't know what their lives were like. You know, I was born in London, raised in London. I don't know what my dad's childhood was like, he never wants to talk about it. I don't know what my mum's childhood was like, she never wants to talk about it. Um, because essentially they're ashamed from coming from kind of nothing. And so I don't know what my roots are. 
And I was talking to someone um, who was saying that they come from 16 uh, generations where the village they've come from is named, like is their surname, the village name is their surname. And he said, you know, what comes with that is so much um, expectation. You know, he walks around the village and people think, think that he should be some noble person. And as a result, like he, he felt like he, he was a misfit. And I just thought that's so interesting because he feels like a misfit, I feel like a misfit, but we couldn't be more different in the way we were raised. And, you know, having conversations like that, I just thought, you know, I've got to stop this pity party. I've got to stop always being in the, oh, poor me sort of thing and start celebrating what it is that I have. And so, you know, one of the major tools I find at this program is gratitude and writing gratitude lists, even though they're an absolute pain. And whenever I sort of start writing it, I'm like, why am I doing this? I don't have time for it. You know, I'm grateful that I've got a job. I'm grateful that. And when I force myself to write more than 10 things, and then I force myself to write more than 15 things, it, it becomes this list that is never ending. And then I'm just like grateful that, you know, the sun's shining and I'm grateful that, you know, there's just so many things. Um, this year, my mum was diagnosed with stage three cancer. And, um, you know, she doesn't have recovery and she is often sort of really pessimistic and, um, you know, just is always looking at what she lacks and, <clears throat> You know, I started writing gratitude lists for our family WhatsApp group where, you know, we're so grateful that she was diagnosed before lockdown and she was able to go through all of her chemotherapy and so grateful that because of lockdown, you know, the journey from home to the hospital where she gets her chemotherapy was 20 minutes as opposed to an hour and a half in traffic and, you know, all these different things. There are so many things to be grateful for and recovery taught me that. You know, recovery taught me the importance of all these tools. Like, I never ever asked for help ever. I just, I, I, I learned when my sisters came along to be utterly self-sufficient, and that I don't need anyone, and I'm never ever going to rely on, you know, my dad or any other man or any other person ever again. And so, reaching out for help in the rooms was so excruciatingly diff difficult. And then I started sort of connecting with people that all hate asking for help. And as a result, like I'm, I'm, I have this like group of amazing people that are like really empowered and really self-sufficient and struggle to ask for help. But when they do, you know that they, they just, you know, they don't want to abuse it. They, they will give back. Like there's just so much understanding between people that we connect with in the rooms. And I'm just... I'm so grateful for that because honestly, like I, I've, I've never ever experienced the kind of connection um, from human to human that I've experienced in these rooms. Like it's such a deep connection. You know, you don't even have to have words. There's just this understanding. I mean, we have this language that we speak with each other. And we just get it, and I love it because it doesn't matter. You know, which country you're in, we just get it and and as a result actually of being 
in the rooms for so many years like, and, and, and having traveled so much for my job and I've gone to so many meetings in so many different places. And the craziest one was going to a meeting in Doha where alcohol is not, not actually allowed to be consumed in the country. Like it's all very underground. And I remember going to an AA meeting in Doha and meeting a girl I was living in LA at the time and meeting a girl from from Orange County and you know making friends with her and you know just connecting and and just having that understanding in a really alien place and today actually I had such a beautiful experience I I um my partner wanted to meet up with uh this couple we had already met the guy in the couple, but he um, had brought his wife this time. And I really didn't want to go because honestly, I'm not a sociable animal. I'm, I, I just it put me in a cave and I'd be happy. I mean, COVID has just been amazing in terms of not having to socialize, which is really embarrassing, but honestly, that's my truth. And so I dragged myself out and um, I ended up meeting um, this man's wife. And there was something about her energy. She's not, in, well, I don't know if she's in the rooms or not. There was something about her energy and we just totally connected. And at the end of it, um, she'd started talking about meditation. And I said, do you meditate? And she was like, oh yeah, every single day. And I was like, I just, there was something, you know, clearly she's got a spiritual practice and there was just something about our energies that just totally clicked. And that's what has been the most beautiful thing about recovery for me is I feel like by getting sober, I have raised my energy. Um, and I'm talking about spiritual energy because I've always been a deeply spiritual person. My parents are Buddhist. I'm used to sort of meditation you know, chanting, all of those things. And I've always known that there is something so much bigger than us out there. And um, I really lost that connection um, as a result of the way I was raised because I, I, I was taught to follow my father's instructions and I was programmed to believe that my father was my higher power. And, um, and, and through sobriety, I've had an opportunity to reconnect with that feeling, with that, that sense of knowing that there's something so much bigger than us. And that's why I wanted this talk to be about human aid. Um, what was the, you know, relinquishing this idea that a human power is the answer. And that's what I love in the preamble that, you know, God could and would if he was sought, you know, it is about connecting to something so much bigger than us. And I love that. Like, I can't define my higher power. It's just an inner knowing. I know that I can connect to that inner knowing through meditation and getting quiet. Um, I was always trying to seek solutions outside of myself. And even today I can go to dinner parties or, you know, just be with other people and feel really uncomfortable in my own skin because I'm trying to, 
I'm trying to get validation from the outside world. I want people to like me. I want people to accept me. I want people to be impressed by who I am, by what I say, what I do, what I've done, all those things. And when I feel those knots getting churned up in my stomach, I just breathe and I, I kind of detach from that situation. I remember that the only person that can give me the recognition, the validation and the serenity that I need is me. Like it, it's within me. I've carried it all around throughout my life, but I've always been looking outwards. And, you know, steps 11 and 12 have really been the steps that have you know allowed me to to dig deep and to find that core calmness um and it's really not easy you know particularly sort of juggling relationship and a job where everything is like trying to deliver and trying to be there for you know people that are making demands of you and have expectations and and all of that but you know again with boundaries I've really um learn to say you know what I I just I need that time to reconnect um and 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 turn inwards and just find that stillness and and so yeah you know and I'm so proud that I have I've gone through all the challenges and the the sort of difficulties in in in, in getting sober, it's been multi-layered. And, you know, some years have been easier than others, you know, going through certain life things, like my mum getting sick, you know, it has been an absolute up and down journey. And, you know, even just giving this share tonight, I wasn't sure whether I'd be positive or negative because some days I have my wobbles and other days I'm a total spiritual giant. Um, and, you know, I can't predict when those things will, when those moods will happen. But all I know is that, you know, when it gets really, really tough, this too shall pass. And I know that there are people that get it, they're going through it too. Um, and I can lean on them when I can't stand on my own two feet myself. And so I am one grateful alcoholic. Um, I love the fact that I found these rooms and found all of you and um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just so happy to be sober. So thank you. What that was wonderful, Shinny. Thank you so, so much. Um, uh, my name's Claire and I'm still an alcoholic. Um, and uh, what a beautiful, beautiful share. That was wonderful. I loved it. It was, um, yeah, no, it's, I say this, this whole program, isn't it? The language of the heart. And uh, you know, that certainly came from your heart. That's for sure. The gratitude in spades. Um, I was sorry to hear about your mother. Um, and, uh, you know, identification wise, you know, gosh, I, mean, I had loads of identification back when you were talking about the, you know, having a glug of vodka, you know, when you got outside the front door from a water bottle, it reminded me of, my, you know, even though I would have drunk anything, my sort of drink of choice was actually wine I didn't particularly like 